I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 41 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is soul jazz organist Ronnie Foster, known both as a solo artist and as a session musician on classic albums by Stevie Wonder, George Benson, and others. Foster's first album, Two-Headed Freep, was released in 1972 on Blue Note Records and recently was remastered by former Carol Pop guest Kevin Gray and reissued as part of the label's classic vinyl series. Not only does it sound great, but it's a revelation for anyone previously unfamiliar with this high-octane jazz-funk classic. Almost exactly 50 years later, on July 15th, Foster's releasing his first new album since 1986, also on Blue Note. It's called fittingly reboot and demonstrates that Foster remains a master at writing and performing a happy fusion of jazz, funk, and blues. Meanwhile, you may have heard Foster play on one of the greatest albums ever made, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. That's Foster delivering those soaring organ parts on Summer Soft. You know, Stevie Wonder has some keyboard chops himself. So when he brings in someone else to play organ, that person must be pretty talented. Foster calls Wonder his best friend, and their relationship goes back decades. He tells of their meeting in Detroit and their bonding over being Tauruses born one day apart. And how about that Songs in the Key of Life session? Did Wonder tell him what to play? Did Foster just wing it? Foster also played early in his career with jazz guitarist George Benson and performs on many of Benson's 1970s albums. Not only is Foster all over Benson's 1976 smash Reason, which topped the pop, jazz, and R&B charts, but Foster's song Lady closes the album. In addition, Foster played with jazz guitarist Grant Green and tenor saxophonist Stanley Turrentine, and he went on to perform with Roberta Flack, Washington Jr., The Jacksons, and Robbie Robertson. Foster tells of growing up in Buffalo, New York, learning piano, but then falling for the Hammond B3 organ. What was life like as a working soul jazz musician playing with established and rising stars? How did he get his break to do his own album for Blue Note? What is a two-headed freep anyway? And what was the impact on his life and career years later when A Tribe Called Quest sampled that album's song, Mystic Brew, on their song, Electric Relaxation? Foster tried different things on his follow-up albums for Blue Note, including singing, but his work with the label ended after 1975's Cheshire Cat. He put out two albums on Columbia in the late 70s, The Racer on the Pro Jazz label in 1986, and that was the last Ronnie Foster album for 36 years. He kept working though, moving to his current home of Las Vegas in 2000, and spending several years as musical director of the show, Smokey Robinson Presents Human Nature. He continued to write songs and produce other artists as well. So how did he wind up back on Blue Note after all these years? How has his approach to songwriting and performing changed in that time? What's it like to have his son Chris Foster playing drums in his current band? How did he come to sing the new blues song, Hey Good Looking Woman? What's the story behind After Conversation with Nadia, the solo piano piece that ends the album Reboot? And now what for Ronnie Foster? Ronnie Foster has seen and played a lot over a career that spans more than a half century, and he's got great stories to share. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Ronnie Foster. I was uh, raised at my uh, uh, by my grandfather, basically. So what happened? There was a piano in the house, and I, you know, I'm self-taught. So I just started messing around with it. You know, I, I was uh, uh, self-taught, and you know, and learned a lot of stuff from you know a lot of the masters over time. So, were you playing classical compositions, or were you just sort of making that chords and making stuff up? Just making it up. So, and what kind of music did you like at the time? I liked kind of everything. Uh, a lot of jazz, uh, blues, blues stuff, you know, like that. But I, I, even to this day, I mean, music, even as a writer, I'm writing in like six million different directions. Um, but, yeah, those are the foundations, you know, blues and, and jazz and stuff like that. So. 
so and were there any uh pianists that you were you know really admiring of did you think oh i want to be play play like this guy um well like well, herbie obviously <laughs> uh gene harris i could i could name uh and there's another guy oh ahmed jamal this was stuff that i was listening to you know then that all changed when i switched switched to organ which is a whole nother story <laughs> that's your next story yeah anyway i had this uh, little group called uh we called the duo brothers and um it was virgil day who was a young drummer in, in buffalo and myself we were friends and we were in school together and we used to play talent shows and it was just piano and, and drums so i had a little song that i wrote and then uh we featured him i would play just the vamp on uh, take five you know from dave brubeck and, and that was the thing so anyway his mother worked at this club and said, oh, I'm going to bring you guys to the jam session on Sunday because I, I could be a chaperone. We said, OK, great. And I said, they have a piano there. And she said, oh, yeah, they got a piano there. So I get there and look at where's the piano. And what was sitting on stage was a Hammond B3. And I said, oh, OK, well, let me try. <laughs> so and that was it. I was hooked. That was a lock right from that day. So then. I started going to uh, the Hammond store downtown Buffalo, paying 50 cents for half an hour or whatever to, to, you know, practice. And I was there so much that the guy said one day, he says, hey, Ronnie, you know, just play your first 50 cents. If nobody shows up, play, you know, just go for it, which, you know, was a, a beautiful thing. Um, so, yeah, then I got exposed to Jimmy and, you know, uh, Grant with Larry Young and all of that stuff, you know. So um, what happened is how I met Jimmy. So there's this club called the Royal Arms in Buffalo where all the top acts came through. Um, and I called the owner and I said, listen, because he was sneak me in and say, you sit in that corner over there. You can't move because you're not supposed to be in it because he knew I loved music and I played, you know. So fortunately, that place where I was sitting was right i could see right across the stage so i had a full 100 percent view of you know the artist so i called him i said hello jimmy's coming to town i said i, I gotta meet jimmy i said where's he staying and he said oh it was at some hotel i can't remember on main street in buffalo so i called the hotel and this is the phone call which <laughs> is still funny just there jimmy answers phone in his unmistakable voice and hello i said Hi, Mr. Stern. I said, my name's Ronnie Foster. I'm a young organist in Buffalo. I wanted you got to show me something. Boy, when you hear me play, you won't want to play anymore. I said, <laughs> I said Mr. Stern, really, I, I love to play. Boy, you're not listening to me. When you hear me play, you're going to want to throw your organ away. I said, no. I said, really? I want You know what he was doing? He was testing me to see how hungry I was. Right. Or, for the knowledge. So next thing he said, what time you get out of school? I said, three o'clock. He said, meet me at the club. And then that started our whole relationship. I was 12. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were very close, you know, uh, up until, you know, he passed. And uh, another crazy thing is uh, that uh, I was 14 a few years later. And George, remember the cookbook group with Lonnie Smith, uh, Marion Booker, Ronnie Cuber, and George. But George was a huge, huge Jimmy Smith fan. So he came in the night before they were starting in the next week to get Jimmy's last set. And so uh, after after the set, you know, we're all in the back and Jimmy goes to George. Hey, George, we little young boy play Ronnie Foster. And then George and I started hanging out at 14, you know, that whole week he was there. And then, you know, Lonnie was with him, who was Buffalo homeboy as well. And uh, then uh, when Lonnie left to go out on his own, I started playing with George on weekends when I was 15. <laughs> so it's just kind of crazy, crazy stuff. So Jimmy, you know, kind of changed my path. Right. When the rest of his history, so, right? So that's George Benson, right? Right, George Benson, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so when you, taking you back to that stage where you got on the stage and you thought there was going to be a piano, but there was a Hammond B3, what was it about the Hammond B3 that made you think, I'm not looking back now? It, I mean, obviously it was something different. 
but it just it, I just really connected with it immediately. You know, there was just something about it. And uh, I just had an immediate connection. And it was like, you know, Taurus, once we kind of. <laughs> you know, hone in on something, it's it's a lock. So that's kind of what it was, you know, pretty simply. Because obviously it's a keyboard, so you got the same notes, right. but it's a totally different way of playing, different sound, and also different sound from, you know, if you've heard like organ in a church or something like that, right. it's a different, you know, it's it's sort of familiar, but not the same. Right. right. And it was it was funny because fortunately, whoever the organist was that had was playing the gig or the last person to play it, the settings that they had were the right settings. There wasn't like, it was like this kind of crazy setting, you know, like the top manual was nice for, you know, playing the melody and, and the bottom manual. And because we were playing stuff that we would play when I played piano, and remember we didn't have a bass player, so I was always playing like a little left-hand bass. Right. Uh, but, you know, I learned later that that was a whole nother animal, you know, that I had to learn to, to play. Yeah, I talked with Delvon Lamar and he's, he, has, oh. he likes the trio format because he just plays the bass on his left hand. And I'm just like, wouldn't it be easier to just have a bassist? But nope. No, no, it's, it's, it's a thing. And thank you for saying Delvon. I, Delvon, I love Delvon. He's a brother. I just did a, a thing on with him and Grant Green Jr. with their new release just a few months ago up in Seattle. And I love Delvon. He bought one of my, uh, one of my organs that he keeps out on the road. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, but he's a really cool guy. He, he plays his ass off. You know, so, uh, I, and beautiful people, that whole group. But it, it must also, also be cool, by the way, for you to see a new generation of people doing what you do and bringing it right. into you know the next generation's modern yeah. era and all that. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's just very cool. And they're, they're very, uh, it's humbling, you know, when they say things, oh, you know, we Part of the reason we're doing this, and you know, I mean, that's just kind of crazy, but um, yeah, but yeah, that that was a lot of fun. Yeah, so so you're playing in Buffalo. You're you're right. you're hooked on the Hammond B three. You're writing music on it, also. Oh, I'm. Oh, you know what? Even you're always writing music. I'm always writing. You know, uh, it's a funny thing. Like if I sit down to practice, sometimes whatever I'm doing, sometimes triggers something, and then I end up writing something <laughs> you know it's that kind of thing yeah so how'd you end up in detroit then okay uh, i had my trio uh with virgil who was the drummer um and um the other guitarist i can't think of his name right now uh he was from buffalo also so we playing at uh baker's keyboard lounge not the not the main jazz club but they had two we were just there you know pretty much every night and uh that and I was living, uh, rooming with my friend, uh, Demo Cates, who was saxophonist uh, with the group. Uh, what are they called? I can't even think of the name, but the, the, the organ player wrote uh, Jan Jan. <laughs> you know, so uh, the Fabulous Counts. You know, that was, uh, we were just out with the trio and just doing our thing. And, and what was Detroit like? Detroit was great. Very musical I mean, musical town, to say the least. So this you know, is like the late 60s at this point when Motown's kind this of... Was, um, this was actually about 70. When was Alive recorded with Grant? So this is jazz guitarist uh, Grant yeah. Green, and you're playing with him. After the Grant Green session, uh, the Alive, Francis Wolf came up to me and asked me if I wanted a deal with Blue Note. And of course I said, <laughs> yes. Right. So, and then in the interim, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, Alfred uh, Francis uh, passed away and Blue Note was kind of up in the air and because he had offered me uh, the deal with uh, Blue Note after the Alive album. So I found out who took over, which was George, uh, George Butler. Uh, and uh, I called George and said, you know, I had this deal with Francis and so on and so forth. And, he says, oh, okay. He says, where are you playing? I said, Detroit. He says, oh, I'll come out and, you know, check you out. And that's when we were playing in Detroit. We came to that club. And after we came off, he says, yeah, I'm going to sign you. <laughs> so, uh, and the tune that moved him was Chunky, which is a little different, you know, for, for organ stuff at the time. Uh, so, yeah, that's how that started. So that's how we line up everything. 
and then and then you recorded the album Two Headed Freep, which kicks off with Chunky, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's like this, it's this you know funk, jazz record, and and I'm not sure you know how much how unusual that was at the time. I mean, it sounds fantastic now. I just picked up the uh, you know the 50th anniversary pressing that oh, wow. did, oh. and you know it sounds great. You know Kevin Gray, who I've uh, had on this uh, podcast, actually did the mastering on it, and. Um, right. It really pops, but I. Well, what was the reception of it like at the time? Like, was that considered an unusual album? I, I don't think so. I think, well, you know, there's that some of that uh, biography, or when they talk about, uh, you know, my music and say, oh, you know, jazz purists kind of shun this thing, and you know what I mean. And <laughs> yeah, because it wasn't like a straight ahead record. You know, it was uh, uh, covers, which. I actually had a little problem with uh, at the time on the first record, especially. Uh, I said I want some, you know, some of my originals. So there was Chucky Missing Brew, Kentucky Fried Chicken, I think, and then Two Headed Freak, the title, right? Uh, you know, and then everything else was, you know, so Al Green's tunes and uh, Let's Stay Together was on there. You know, yeah, you know, Dr- Drowning in a Sea of Love, right? And, you know, I wasn't going to complain too much because I was, you know, I felt very fortunate <laughs> to, to be doing my first record, right? So, but I remember a conversation, just segueing a little bit, is uh, with George Butler on the next record, um, uh, Sweet Revival from Blue Note. Uh, they did, you know, it's really kind of like a pop, pop thing. I think that that's the record I don't like the most out of, everything I did because I thought it was a little bit too contrived, you know, for, for what I wanted to do. And I had a conversation with George. I said, George, I said, I need to do some originals. Um, and he says, well, you know, people want to hear, they want to hear covers. And I said, well, George, aren't covers somebody's originals? Right. Then, right. He says, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so that's when, do you think it's just harder for people to accept original instrumental music? Like maybe they think, well, you know, you, you could sort of sing, let's say together and that's a hit, but then it's easier to do a cover of that than, you know, a cover right. of a instrumental mu- song. I don't know. I mean, I like instrumental music. It's just a different yeah. thing, but, but, well, uh, yeah. but Delvan also Lamar was saying how it, there's a sort of an extra battle to get people to be emotionally connected to instrumental music. I think in some ways, yes and no. Um, you know, it's, I always say, it's just like, whatever I do is, is real and, and it comes from me, you know, and you put it out and if people are on board, they're on board, you know, instead of trying to, cause you'll never hear music the way the audience hears the music, period. We can't hear that way. You know, musicians, we think we can, but you know, uh, the, that experience, the audience experience is a whole different thing. So. You just put yourself out there and and let it ride, you know. It's true to your art form. So where did the title Two-Headed Freep come from? Uh, I knew that. And it's it's Freep, R-E-A-P, F-R-E-A-P. Right. Which I think is a cross between freak and creep, right? Well, yeah, it's more freak than, okay, so what I was thinking, and, you know, being 20, I was thinking, you know, I want to be different with everything, you know, trying to be, you know, whatever. And I said, I can't be freak, it can't be freak. So I just made up a word, I just put a P on it. (laughs) So that's really the honest, (laughs) you know, it's just I wanted to be different with it. So, yeah. But the song is actually two melodies and you know in music we call it heads uh, are the main melodies so it's two-headed free yeah there's two melodies going on. oh that's cool yeah <laughs> that actually makes that may actually make sense it will make me think think of it differently yeah no i, I love sort of the art of naming instrumental songs like chunky right. kind of feels chunky okay you want to uh, know how that happened I do, I do. And then we'll get to Mystic Brew and Kentucky Fried right. Chicken, too. Right. Well, those are pretty, ob- I mean, not uh, Mystic <laughs> Brew's not obvious, but Kentucky Fried Chicken is because I was eating a lot of it then. So there you um, go. Chunky was my favorite candy bar. You remember the little square oh, one? Yeah, with, yeah. Absolutely. With the that was my favorite. So that's how that got called Chunky. <laughs> it's funny. You couldn't, you couldn't get them to buy it for an ad or something. You could have said, hey, come on. Yeah, hey, you know, back in the day, probably now, right? <laughs> It'd be a little different. But um, yeah, um, and Mystic Brew, I mean, that just kind of came. I wrote that 
when I was 18 in uh, Indianapolis, where I was playing right out, out of high school. And, um, you know, I can every time that name comes up, I see myself walking down the street in Indianapolis mm. with my head. <laughs> Crazy. And, and Mr. Brew got sampled by Tribe Called Quest later, right? First, yeah. Yeah, uh, they were the first ones to sample it. It was funny how I found out, because I didn't know, uh, this uh, DJ in London, I can't think of his name now, but he called me. He says, oh, Ronnie, you know, we're playing all your music here, and you know, everybody's loving it, you know, and all that. And he said, we were going to do a remix on um, Mystic Brew, but he said, Tribe Called Quest already sampled it. And I said, oh, did they? Really? You know? And then I went out and got the record. And uh, I said, oh, hmm. Yeah. And they didn't get a license. You know, ah. pretty prevalent back then in those days with a lot of hip hop artists. So uh, I called, uh, you know, Blue Note and uh, they handled it, took care of it. So we're all good. You know, I was first I felt I felt violated musically. I got over that, you know. <laughs> well yeah, if they so, you know yeah if you get credited and get compensated for it it's yeah, pretty right. cool i would think right. but you, yeah. you don't want it to happen without you knowing about it right exactly yeah so you know and then later j cole did it uh on forbidden fruits and uh on neighbors is that actually significant uh when you're getting sampled by these hip-hop artists does that does that actually, you know, pay you in a way that you didn't expect? Or is it sort of something that's nice, but on the side, but not like a big deal? No, it is. It, it It's it's kind of like, um, you know, that these guys, because, you know, I would say they're small percentage, but a lot of these guys are very, very musical and, you know, have, have really a lot to say. Uh, and it's kind of humbling that they would pick you know, something that you did to be part of, of that story, you know? Uh, so yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. And, you know, uh, compensation has been, you know, really good from that standpoint, <laughs> you know, as well. So, and, and, it, and uh, I play basketball five days a week. Okay. And I'm playing with, with guys who are, you know, probably 19 to 40 in between that range. Right. So um, a lot of guys know, uh, you know, I'm in the business, but some some of the younger guys, you know, some guys will say, "Hey, you know what old school's done? You know, he taught your music and all that." And they find out, they're like, "Oh no way!" You know, they're freaking out. So it's kind of a funny thing. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? You are J Cole. Get out of here. You know, <laughs> it's all that kind of funny stuff. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's fun. You know, you get a little notoriety with the kids. You know, and all that stuff. So, so in the early mid '70s, you're making these solo albums. You got. Uh, uh, you know, you've got Two-Headed Freep, then you got Sweet Revival and uh, On the Avenue and Cheshire Cat. And you're singing on those, too. You know, right. is that is the singing something you always wanted to do or did you think I'm just going to mix it up a little bit? Yeah, no, it, it was. Um, you know, I was influenced by Steve a lot. He was my main influence to, to want to sing. Our timbres are very similar. I cannot sing like Steve. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying <laughs> the color of our voices are very, you know, uh, similar uh, even we've laughed about that but um you know i, I wanted to to do that you know try that and you know uh some of it was okay and some of it wasn't you know but uh you know hopefully i'm singing a lot better now so but, yeah you sing on the new album as well yeah yeah so yeah that's um paying homage to the blues you know what i mean so Absolutely. Playing organ and not singing are different from singing and, uh, and, and it's sort of the composition is kind of different because you're, 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 the vocals are carrying the melody right. instead of the right. instrument. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I just didn't know whether you were sort of always like thinking, ah, oh, I want to sing. And also you got to write lyrics if you sing. So. Right. Right. Yeah. There, there are a lot of songs I, I did write lyrics and then there's stuff that, you know, I produced on people that I wrote, you know, I have some stuff with, uh, Brenda Russell, you know, and if I feel that, because always when I write a vocal, it's always built off a story. And a lot of times I can bring the story to life via the lyrics. And a lot of times I get stuck. You know, I, I'm not really doing it justice. So that's when I'll bring, you know, other people into, you know, the masters to, to, to help with that stuff. Where are you right now? Uh, Las Vegas. 
So is that, yeah, because you've done like residencies and a lot of work there. Are you living out there and have you been for yeah, a while? Yeah, I've been, I've been here since 2000. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I've been here for a minute after LA. So, well, I'm from New York, you know. Can you see the 85th, West 85th sign right there? Yeah, so but so behind him, for those of you who can't see through this podcast, you know, West 85th Street uh, sign, and then below that looks like it's the gold record for Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, yeah, the platinum. Yeah, platinum, right? Yeah, it looked it looked even brighter than the gold. And, and you play and you play on the song Summer Soft on that, Summer which, Soft, is one of the, right. which is one of the best songs on one of the greatest albums ever made. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's got all those crazy modulations at the end, like I, like Tell me thing about modulates it. like. I, Eight times. Yeah I, yeah, I had to jump on that stuff. So I said, you're crazy, man. So, but it was fun. How did you end up on that? Well, it's... with Steve, Steve and I are our best friends. We we're born, born a day apart. Wow. And I always tell him, you know, respect his elders because I'm a day older. So <laughs> that's our little, <laughs> little thing. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, because of our friendship and, uh, you know, our musical uh you know, integration with each other. You know, he asked me, hey, man, I want you to play organ on this. And, um, you know, so I also brought George to the session for another star, George Benson, because he played guitar and sang on it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's just just normal with us. You know, it's just it's music. And I always uh, uh, pay homage to him, uh on pretty much a lot of my records, you'll notice that there's a Stevie tune. So including, including the new one you cover, uh, is, new one, lovely. Yeah. a few songs yeah. later on the same record. Yeah. Crazy. Huh? <laughs> well, I would think that, that given that Stevie wonders, pretty good, uh, keyboard player that for oh. him to bring you in to play, uh, organ on one of his songs would be pretty high praise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm always humbled by that, you know, um, but yeah, no, he's a bad boy. I can tell you that. <laughs> he, he plays a lot more than people think. He can play a lot more than what people think, you know, so I can tell you that. Yeah. So, so that session, are, are, are you guys, is there like a band playing live or is he sort of doing the drums and then laying down other stuff? Uh, and the track, the track was done uh, when we got there, uh, when I got there to do the thing and it was just him and I, and I opened up the, the organ uh, to the track. Yeah. So how much direction does he give you? A lot. <laughs> He's very, very uh, uh, specific about what he wants and what he feels. I mean, there's some freedom, but you know what I mean? Basically, oh, this is what I want. This, you know, the sound, the feel, everything. He's he's in control. Another Taurus. We're both Tauruses, so, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a Taurus, too. So there you oh, go. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we're all good. Then. <laughs> uh, are you? Uh, Cinco de Mayo. Oh, you're single, and my daughter is a, a tourist, so she's a single to my baby. So awesome! Oh, interesting. Yeah. What, what are you? I am May twelfth. Um, and see, my brother's May eleventh. So wow, you know, we're we're all in that cluster. What's Stevie then? I should know the this, but the thirteenth. See, all right. Well, we're all within eight days. I so said that's a day a day after me. He was born. So all oh, right, right. You did yeah, mention right. that. So there you go. <laughs> So, so, so you're doing the session summer soft. So first of all, you got to hear the song and, right. and were you, were you like, Oh, that's a good one. Oh yeah. I mean, what's not a good song for Steve. You know what I'm saying? I mean, really, it's right. really uh, especially in but, there. I mean, he had about the most golden run of like any songwriter performer ever from, you know, 72, yeah. 71 through, you know, 76. And it's not like he was bad before or afterwards either. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's still a, a heavyweight. Uh, but yeah, it was, I said, oh, very cool. You know, I, I liked it and he wanted me on it. So that that was it. So we went in and, and, and did it and, you know, came out great. I was happy to be on that. <laughs> Do you bring your own Hammond B3 to the session or does he have it all I, set up there? That particular one, I had rented a, uh, a B3 that I use a lot, uh, uh, you know, live or, or whatever for sessions and stuff in, in LA. So, uh, yeah, I really love that organ, you know, back then, I don't know where it is now, but, right. uh, yeah, it was a beautiful instrument. Yeah. And where did you, so where did you know Stevie from originally? Okay. Uh, Steve and I met, um, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Originally. Right. Yeah. And, um, Ray Parker, 
was playing with Stevie and they did a, a concert and Ray Parker actually subbed for my guitars when I had my trio in Detroit. I was living in Detroit for a while and my guitars uh, couldn't make the gig. And so I said, oh, like, who, who can I use, you know, uh, for this? So believe it or not, it was Ray Parker. And we were playing some very interesting things. Um, and Ray came in and, and killed it, <laughs> you know. And so um, when they came into town, I called the hotel where they were staying. And I said, hey, Ray, what's going on? You know, and said hi and all that. I said, where's Steve? Is he around? Or, you know, he said, oh, I think he's out on the town somewhere. And then somebody said, oh, Stevie's down at Blue Point Supper Club playing drums. So I went down there, you know, because uh, I wanted to meet him. And uh, when I was coming in, he was coming out. And I said, hey, Steve, how you doing? Roddy Foster, I just wanted to meet you. And he said, oh, what's your sign? I said, Taurus, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Taurus too, <laughs> you know. So that's how we met. And then um, later on, I was in uh, Detroit playing with Grant Green uh, at Watts Mozambique, uh, where Grant played a lot in Detroit. And Stevie came in and, uh, you know, I guess somebody told him it was me on the organ or something like that. So at the end of the set, he said, oh, who's that no playing organ player up there? <laughs> you know, kind of like, <laughs> not, not the exact words, but I won't repeat that. But um and I said, it's me, you know, singing, you know, whatever like that. And so we we joined again and, you know, we hung out at the club. Then, um, you know, he had the accident, you know, where he had the contusion and he was away for a while. So there was an event I was doing for Blue Note and we ran into each other again. And so he said, oh, man, you should come by the studio, hang out, you know. And so I stayed out in L.A. an extra week and hung out in the studio with with him, you know, for four or five days and it was great. And that really kind of, really kind of cemented our, our, our friendship growth, you know, cause he, uh, when I was with George, uh, we had a week or something off wherever Steve was, I would go. So if he was in New York, I'd be there when I was living in New York or I'd go to LA and we just hung out. It was, just, you know, it was a great right. time. Yeah. What was he, Before, what was he doing in the studio studio when you were hanging out there? Always, always writing. <laughs> You know, I, I I can tell you that I've been in a lot of sessions with him and stuff that hopefully you will hear, but more than likely not. He's always, you know, he's just prolific that way. He's always doing something. And if you get him next to a piano, forget it. He's he's stuck. <laughs> so there are other songs you play together that just haven't come out. Not not that we played together that I've 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 been on uh, uh, been present and at, at sessions just just. Right. And then, you know, um, on the uh, Love Satellite, you know, he played uh, he played drums on Happy Song. And then on Let Me In Your Life, he played the drums on it as well. So, you know, yeah, so we had to actually come on and play some drums. Okay. You know, That's a, pretty awesome. Yeah, he's a bad drummer. <laughs> making your own albums then, and then you're also doing a lot of work on other people's albums um, right george benson's breezen being right. a big example of that you know lady is the last song on that record was it nice for you to be able to kind of go back and forth between being the lead guy and then you know sort of su supporting someone else's work right because yeah i mean you know especially with george you know like i said we had a long relationship he's still a brother like i talked to him every two weeks now um <clears throat> you know that was a a big boost for me, uh, you know, being involved with George, um, you know, for my career. Um, it opened a lot of doors um, still. Uh, but no, it, it wasn't a problem. I mean, we're playing great music. We're playing with great players, you know, so. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't think it was a problem. I was wondering if it was sort of a nice change of pace that like, it's like now I have to put on my band leader hat. Now I get to sort right. of going on a George Benson session or a Stevie Wonder session or whoever right. else you're working with. Right. 
Yeah, I I actually like when I left George is at the time when uh, I felt I wanted to go out on my own. You know, uh, I felt it was time and it was no reflection on George. Uh, it's just something I wanted to do. I just, you know, I was in a heavy writing mode and, uh, you know, creating and all that stuff and had a few different bands. And, um, yeah. So then I ended up going out with Stevie two times and then I was with Lionel uh, for three years on, on the road, you know. So, yeah, I, I had some stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was good. When you're forming your own band, what what player instrument is most important to you? Like, is it getting the drums right, getting the guitar right? Is it you just sort of need everything equally? Yeah, everything. But I will say that drums are important because I'm very rhythmically based uh, as myself. Um, and I'm sure you notice that my son is playing on. Yes. On, your, son, uh, your son, Chris, is uh, on your new album. Right, on for it, and that's where and my daughter did the cover. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's really important because uh, Chris, my son, was always begging, "Oh, why can I play the trio?" I said, "I said, you know, we swing, right? You know." <laughs> and it was became a little thing. All right, Dad. All right. Dad. So he actually, um, you know, got that stuff together, and I said, "Okay." You know, because this is the new trio with uh, Michael Neal, who is the rhythm guitarist with George. Yeah, it, it was just great. And then we had Jimmy Bramley uh, come in because originally uh, I had my former drummer of my trio uh, just open, uh, who played with my organ bands and the Funk Fusion band. And he uh, unfortunately got sick two days before the session. So, because uh, I wanted different drummers on different things to give it you know, different fields. And uh, uh, Jimmy Branley came, uh, highly recommended, and uh, he played on three things, and it was great, you know. And then Luis Conte and Lenny Castro, you know, were really, really close brothers, and I, I wanted to have them play together instead of overdubbing. Well, we overdub the shaker later, or, you know, so they played together, and, and that brought a different uh, synergy to the, to the rhythm stuff that they were doing, you know. Right. So the, the album's called Reboot. It's out July 15th. Yeah. And uh, it's on Blue Note. It's your first album right. on Blue Note since 1975. Um, and your first album, as far as I can tell, your first album as Ronnie Foster since, what, 86? So what prompted you to say, you know what, it's 50th anniversary of Two-Headed Freep. It's time to do another, time to do another band record. Well, it wasn't like, we, you know, I, I, I had had a few conversations with Don and we were talking about something else and, uh, you know, it came up uh, about bringing me back and, uh, and we did it. So, you know, that, that, that was it. And he said, send me the music. What, what do you want to do? And I did that. And he says, I love everything. Let's go. <laughs> you know, really simple. You know, Don is a genius. So <laughs> uh, he knows what he's talking about. He's very, very musical. Yeah. Had, you, had you been wanting to do this for a while or was it sort of like, yeah, a, I had, I, I had thought about it. We had thought about it with the old trio, uh, putting out, uh, this record, uh, reboot, still the same idea that I had before. Um, but I, I, we recorded a live version and it just didn't move. I didn't feel that it was really a great example of what we were doing. You know, musically, you know, just could be a night, you know, when things aren't going right. But uh, yeah, so I just kind of put that on a on a shelf, and then you know, and it happened with Ludo. So here we are, <laughs> and I'm glad that's the way it happened. And I, I believe in that. I believe things happen for a reason, uh, whether they're good or bad. But you know, they, you can't you can't argue that they're not supposed to happen because they're happening. <laughs> Are these songs that you've been writing over a long period or, or was it like, Oh, I'm going to do an album. I better write some songs. Yeah. Like, like the blues tune I've had. Oh, I used to play that with my funk fusion band. Uh, and it became very popular uh, on the road when we played it, because uh, on the road, I actually have uh, the audience participate. That's Hey, good looking woman. Yeah. Hey, good looking. Yeah. 
and I have them participate and I have them sing and it's a big hit all the time. People go crazy over that thing, <laughs> you know, and uh, we have, really have a lot of fun. And I try to, I'll do things like we take a breakdown and I'll sing a part and then they're supposed to, uh, you know, repeat it. And then depending on how the audience reacts, if they're really, really good, which is, you'd be surprised, uh, then I try to trick them with things, you know, <laughs> do a lick or something. <laughs> but it's always fun. Yeah. And I like that because they feel part of the, the audience feels, you know, more more part of the band in a sense. When was the last time before this you'd been out on the road with your own band? Oh, uh, before this, we did the album in uh, January. Uh, just before that, we were at Marion's uh, Jazz Room in Switzerland for five five days uh, with, with the trio. Um, and then... And then we came back and I was working on the music for the record. And then after that, we've done just some local stuff. We've done some stuff here in, in Vegas. And then we did, uh, you know, the baked potato, which I do at least twice a year because I love the baked potato. And uh, uh, then we did Herb Albert's uh, vibrato uh, jazz room, which is a very, very cool thing. Uh, and we actually kind of did that to try out the room because we had never played there. So, and uh but uh, we've got some stuff in the works now, um, dealing with uh, booking agents and stuff like that to set up a tour, you know, after the record. Right. So, yeah. And so how does like the playing out now feel compared to how it did, you know, back in the early days? And also what are the audiences like now compared to then also? The audiences have been uh, really great uh, for us uh, in Europe. Uh, audiences are a little different than American uh, audiences uh, when they listen. Uh, I think we're in America, we're a little spoiled because there's so much we get exposed to. And in Europe, they don't get to to see a lot, you know what I'm saying, a lot of, right. the, uh, of you know, certain music. And it's like George, you know, George goes to Europe all the time and it doesn't matter if he has a hit record or not they respect him as an artist, you know, so they, they support that. Where, you know, the American thing is like, oh, what's your latest, what's the latest hit? You know, you know, that kind of mentality. Right. I mean, I, I understand it. But yeah, uh, we're very fortunate because, um, like I said, I come from a real place. I, I'm very emotionally involved in what I do when I, when I play. And I think people feel that. And uh, they get, you know, we says, hey, you know, after a show, man, we really, really love seeing you you're really, you know, getting into what you're doing. And, and that's what I'm talking about, just being you and, and, and throwing out. And I think we're, we have a, a lot of energy, uh, a lot of energy in the band, you know, because I have, I, I'm, I'm crazy energy. <laughs> how do you play now compared to how you would have been playing in the 70s? Uh, hopefully better, <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, obviously I, I have a lot more knowledge. You know, I listen to some of the old stuff sometimes and I go, oh, you know, but hey, you know, you, <laughs> that's part of, <laughs> you know, part of it. And uh, I, I mean, I, I feel uh, that I've grown and I, I feel that I still, you know, at 72, I still have a lot to say musically, you know, so I feel, I feel good. You know, I'm, I'm always challenging myself, you know, so I, I don't just settle, you know, does, does the writing feel different now or. Yeah, How's no, it's, it's different. Yeah. Um, and you know, not everything that I write is like necessarily for a jazz record or, or a funk record or whatever, but, uh, it's why it's, you know, cause I appreciate all music. Uh, the, uh, all music is valid. Uh, you can't say no because it's somebody's emotion. So it's valid whether you like it or not. It's another thing. But, you know, anything that anybody does is valid. So, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I just, I live and breathe music, you know. So. <laughs> where Where is the divide between funk and jazz? And do you think you're more on one end than the other at this point? No, I think I'm, I'm on both ends of it. You know what I mean? Um, 
because uh, all of that is incorporated into uh, you know, like who I am, you know, like reboot for me is kind of like, it's funky, but it's a little, um, well, it's jazzy, you know, harmonically chord wise, it's, you know, it's a little different and all that, but I think it's, you know, a nice mesh of, uh, of both worlds. Right. And you've, you've a song on here called after Chicago, what happened in Chicago? Well, it just, I I was, this is when I was MD for this group, Australian group, um, uh, Human Nature, uh, that Smokey was presenting here in Vegas. And we did a show in Chicago. And I came back and I, you know, hit these chords. And it just developed from that. And I just said, oh, that's after Chicago. That's what I call it. (laughs) You know, I just, you know, pull that out of the air. So, but I think it fits the tune, you know, and that's, that tune is pretty intricate, you know, harmonically, you know, but yeah, see, see here, I was thinking there was some big dramatic incident that happened in Chicago. No, like, no. This is, this is like what, this is how you're feeling after that happened. No, no. That's, yeah, there, it's still a good is, story, but maybe not a dramatic story. Yeah, it's not a dramatic <laughs> But there, there is one song on, on the record that is uh, a real story uh, that's, uh, I'm really emotionally based, you know, the one uh, conversation uh, with Nadia. After conversation with Nadia, yeah. yeah right. And uh, and that was really funny about that because I told Don when I sent it to him, I said, hey, this, this is nothing for the record. I just wanted to share this with you. Uh, a friend of mine in Australia, violinist and stuff, and friends, and, uh, you know, she was going through some stuff, uh, hard times, and and uh, you know how you talk to your friend and you try to lift them up. So after that conversation, after I hung up, I'm sitting right by my keyboard and I just played the emotion that I was feeling after our mm-hmm. conversation. And so, yeah, that's totally improvised. I, I could never do that again. Uh, you know, so uh, it was funny because Don said, oh, you know, that's that song after a conversation with Nadia. He says, I think that should be the last cut. On, on on the record, right? And, and I said, Don, I said, that's a piano piece. Said, I said, this right. is working. I was gonna ask and, you about that. Yeah, and he said, so? And I said, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know, he was thinking outside the box. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we, we were able to put that on, so yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you ended this album with a solo piano piece. Right, yeah. And like I, the, the first instrument you you, were, you uh, learned and there right. was a, Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a pretty, pretty heavy piece. And, uh, you know, it was part of some healing for her. Uh, you know, once I played it for her, you know, I said, this is for you. Yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And then you, and you're, you're in Vegas. Uh, you've been there since 2000, you said, and, and there was a show at Smokey Robinson presents human nature and you were the right. musical musical sure. director of that. Yeah for about six years yeah so what what was that show oh it was uh these this guy these guys human nature were big boy band back in australia back in the day they came to um vegas wanting to try to you know uh, get a show going here and they did motown and yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with Motown and you can't go wrong when Smokey's name is on the billboard as well, right? So if Smokey's endorsing, because you're like, four Australian guys in Motown, uh, you know. Uh, so, and, you know, they delivered, you know, they you know, they could really sing and, you know, very, very talented. And at that time that they had reached out to me to come to the band, I uh, was thinking about moving back to L.A. and... Uh, my daughter uh, was in college college then, and I said, you know, I really want to stay here because, you know, she'd come back and forth, you know, to, uh, to home, to Vegas, you know, in between. And I said, oh, this way I can write. I don't have to be on the road because we do a show. We get there a show at 8 o'clock, I mean, 9.30, I'm out, you know. And plus, if we had other gigs later in the night, we could, do, you know. So it, it was great. And, yeah, and it was fun for a while, you know. Yeah, it was uh, great. But um, yeah, so got out of that 
and uh, started doing other things. Yeah. I noticed on a lot of a uh, lot of uh, recordings, like 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 most of the two-headed freep songs, a lot of them, the songs will tend to fade out instead of have a hard yeah. ending. Do right. you tend to write songs with a hard ending, and then, or is it just a matter of like we're just going to keep playing until we sort of, you know, aren't in that sweet spot anymore, and then you'll just fade it out? I think like like on what is it? Hey, good-looking woman is a hard stop, right at the right. end. Um, Jay's dream uh, after a conversation with Nadia the end but it's depending on the feel you know it's kind of like a decision you make uh, well isn't she lovely uh, has a hard stop you know, just, I, you know when you bring that up I start thinking about that you know it's because it's not like right at the top of my head it's just it just happens you know if you're relating to the music how you want that to happen yeah. yeah, isn't she lovely? Goes on for. I mean, it's a really long song when you hear the album version of it. So you, you know you could fade that out at some point. But yeah, no, it has the perfect. You know, right. um, yeah, right. You know, so when you guys are playing it, obviously you're doing that too because you do a really wonderful version on there. If you were, if you had to sort of save one of your albums, like like one album from your collection, you had to run out of your house and grab one. What would it be? I mean, two free passes its merits. Two hundred free passes merits, of course. But I would say it would be between Cheshire Cat, because I think Cheshire Cat was more creative, you know, in, in a certain way. Uh, what I was doing then was a little bit freer creative-wise. That and, and uh, on the avenue was too, but I think the Cheshire Cat was probably more, more so, you know. And I had George playing on it, so that was another great thing. Awesome. Yeah. So, All right. Yep. You can, you're going to come to Chicago sometime? Uh, yeah. Is that where you are? I am. You are? Okay. I, I'm hearing them hard A's. You know, it's like Buffalo, you know. So, no, I have no accent. Everyone else does. Oh, you do? Yeah, everybody else. <laughs> I'm the Midwestern norm. You're the Midwestern norm, yeah. Well, wonderful talking to you. Wonderful hearing your music. Um, I'm excited to hear more. And uh, yeah. good luck with all this stuff. And, and uh, congrats on the release of Reboot. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm very, very uh, excited about this and, and humbled at the same time. You know, Nice to meet a fellow Torian. Yes. Torian's <laughs> brother. Now. There's no way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You, you mean Stevie will hang out now. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a, yeah. Oh, man, that'd, that'd be, well, you know how three Torians get together. That's crazy. That's it for episode 41 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Ronnie Foster for being such a fun, insightful guest. I'll be awaiting my invitation to hang out with him and Stevie Wonder, my fellow Tauruses. Ronnie Foster's new album, Reboot, is out on Blue Note Records July 15th, and the Blue Note Classic Vinyl Series edition of Two-Headed Freep, mastered by Kevin Gray, also is available. You can buy both on the Blue Note site, store.bluenote.com, or wherever fine records are sold. Carapop is produced by Chris Swake, who is decidedly one-headed and not a freep. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carapop website, carapop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carapop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carapop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.